I'm going to get started right away and draw your attention to the subtitle of my talk. As this states, I want to explore some new visions with you today. So I'm going to start by inviting you to look through a pair of field glasses with me. Okay, binoculars. You don't each get your own pair, but I'd like you to imagine. And the year is 1864. The place is atop of a butte, not far from present-day Bismarck, North Dakota. And the field glasses are held in the hands of Colonel H.M. Creel of the U.S. Army, who's scanning the horizon. And frankly, Creel does not like what he sees. The colonel had been leading a company of men eastward from Devil's Lake when they were forced to flee to this hilltop refuge. Although it was not encroaching enemies, they were attempting to outrun. For four hours, four hours, the men waited on the butte as a massive buffalo herd, estimated to be several hundred thousand strong, passed on the prairie floor below. It was a scene Creel recalled as, quote, a solid moving phalanx extending in every direction beyond the vision of the glass, end quote. Now, such staggering numbers of animals are difficult to imagine, although European and American written reports of incredible bison herds appeared even before the expedition of Lewis and Clark. But by the end of the 1880s, the animals were all but extinct. In the summer of 1891, two North Dakota newspapers reported an unusual sight of two wild buffalo south of Jamestown. It was a story H.M. Creel and his contemporaries on the plains would have likely found utterly unremarkable. Although by the 1890s, buffalo sightings were indeed rare and noteworthy events. The demise of bison is a well-documented tragedy of North American history. Although a gradual process stretching back generations, the destruction rapidly accelerated in the 1870s due to large-scale hunting operations by American hide hunters. White settlers recalled that in the wake of the destruction, prairies from Arkansas to Canada were, quote, frosted white as alkali flats and that they resembled a wilderness of whitened skeletons. Now it's that story, what came after the near extinction of American bison, that I'm here to talk to you about today. And I'll enter into that world with a brief account of a street fight that sounds a bit like a scene from a Clint Eastwood movie. Now, the conflict occurred on June 9, 1884 on the streets of Bismarck, and it started with some choice words uttered by a man named George Gibbs to Johnson Ansley, a businessman in town. Gibbs and a few cronies confronted Ansley outside his home, hurling insults, lubricated by alcohol, including a death threat by Gibbs, hanging's too good for you. His pride insulted, Ansley retreated into his home, fetched a revolver, returned to the scene, then inquired of Gibbs, what's that you said? He didn't wait for a response, but fired one round, striking Gibbs below the nose. As his foe crumpled to the ground, Ansley dashed to the town sheriff, where he turned himself in. Gibbs lingered and ultimately died from his wound, but not before Ansley posted bail and skipped town. Local and regional newspapers covered the event in detail, but few paid much attention to the ultimate cause of the confrontation. In fact, Ansley was a trader in buffalo bones, and a rather corrupt one. And Gibbs, a disgruntled employee demanding back payments for hauling wagon loads of bones to the railroad for Johnson and his business partner. So I share this story to let you know that even though the bison were all but gone, the trace of sparks taken, profits reaped. The carcasses of the great animals, picked clean by scavengers and left to bleach in the prairie sun, proved an immensely important source of labor, capital, and conflict. And yet, this story is rarely told in the broader history of the American West. Most work on this subject was done in the 1970s by a geographer, Leroy Barnett, who demonstrated the scale and breadth of the industry and its economic importance. 
But despite laying a solid foundation for further work, few scholars have addressed the subject since. So my hope today is to breathe some new life into this tale, or if one cares to think in terms of bones, provide some connective tissue to a story that became too rigid over the past half century. I want to let you know about this interesting and important industry of the plains, but I also intend to share some different ways of perceiving bone hunting. I wonder, if we look at the enterprise outside the histories that document the tragic ending of the large herds, what might we see? Is there anything to see? In my opinion, what we have might be similar to the view through Colonel Creel's field glasses. There is so much to see, I can't possibly share it all in the time we have. But let's try our best. So, I'll start by talking about what the buffalo bone industry was and offer some background on bone hunting, as I like to call it. Between the late 1870s and early 1890s, the trade in buffalo bones served an important role in the economy of the prairie from the southern plains of Texas into the wide spaces of Montana, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. My focus is primarily on the northern plains, including much of eastern Montana, although in each of these regions, armies of bone hunters scoured the land in search of buffalo anatomy which was a contemporary term for skeletons. Most often, laborers collected bones for traders like Ansley, who shipped them to eastern markets. While some bones were used for ornamental or craft purposes, such as umbrellas, fans, buttons, or knife handles, and a portion of the skulls, hooves, and clinging hide pieces could be used to make glue, most ended up at refineries in the Midwest and eastern US. After being dried, charred, and pulverized into what was known as bone black, Buffalo bones could be used as dyes or to filter impurities out of sugarcane juice. They were also ground into something called bone ash, a high-quality fertilizer. In the mid-1880s, the Michigan Carbon Works of Detroit, one of several large-scale refineries seen here, churned out 5,000 tons of bone black and 4,000 tons of bone ash annually. Many buffalo bone fertilizer products, including Michigan Carbon's famous Homestead Guano, made their way to farms in the south or east, while some returned west to settlers who were eking out a living by farming and bone hunting. Depending on market conditions, bone hunters earned an average of $4 to $12 per ton of bones. That's roughly two cents to six cents per 10 pounds, making the work a laborious undertaking and far from lucrative. It took approximately 100 complete skeletons to accumulate one ton of bones. The average wage of farm laborers in the 1870s and 80s was approximately $1.15 per day, the equivalent of nearly 600 pounds of bones at the low end of the market. Moreover, while other labor positions might offer steady daily wages, bone hunting proved a gamble. One might hit the mother load and accumulate considerable weight in a matter of hours, but more often it took days and long distances to fill a wagon or cart. Harsh weather, competition, shipping problems, and occasionally overburdened markets further the difficulties. Regardless, buffalo bones proved an important, if not exhaustible, resource at the height of the trade in the 1880s. For a time, bones even became a currency unique to the plains. The halls of the bone hunters were not always sold for cash to traders like Ansley, but often exchanged with merchants for goods or store credit. Many traders issued receipts, or buffalo bone money, which were honored as currency by local businesses. At times, this form of payment was the only option available to bone hunters. Halls might be traded for flour and calico at the nearest store, as one pioneer recalled, or for coal and lumber. One bone trader recalled that from 1884 to 1891, a northern Dakota lumber firm shipped bones east at an average of 1,000 carloads a year. 
The use of buffalo bones as currency indicates the impact the trade had on Plains life, as well as the public's confidence in the market. While some farmers claimed their lands were so full of bones, they couldn't plow the earth without striking them. In most cases, bone hunters ranged far from townships and used various methods to increase their catch. Occasionally, they relied on nature to expose the riches beneath the high prairie grasses. In 1882, a settler reported that a Dakota blaze, quote, left the whole of Dickey County a blackened surface, save for the bleached buffalo bones, end quote. However, many bone hunters proved unwilling to wait for nature's assistance. They ignited so many fires on the prairies that some settlers recalled the smell of smoke in the spring air as a sign that the bone hunting season had begun. After loading their bounties into wagons or Red River carts seen here, which was a fur trade era development constructed entirely of wood and capable of bearing between 500 and 1,200 pounds depending on size and craftsmanship. After loading these carts, laborers transported their cargo to railroad towns for shipment. Although a small percentage of bones moved east by steamboat in areas where tracks were yet to be laid. Fort Benton proved an important shipping center for bones via the Missouri River. And while bone hunters often used well-worn trail systems and old-fashioned freighters, Success of the buffalo bone industry required a melding of traditional and modern transportation modes and methods. Indeed, bone hunters, traders, and factory owners were entirely dependent on railroads to handle the tons of skeletons plucked from the prairies. Despite the eagerness of the hunters, the capacity of railroads to keep pace with the volume of bones could be problematic. In 1890 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, a single mound took up five city blocks and reportedly contained the skeletons of some 170,000 animals. Another fast-growing rail town in Saskatchewan became so linked to the trade and so aesthetically marked by buffalo anatomy that it was officially named Pile of Bones. Later, that city was renamed Regina and designated the provincial capital. Large stockpiles of bones may have also resulted from the seasonal nature of the enterprise. Traveling by train in the winter, one would encounter massive bones piled along the tracks, frozen and unmovable, like giant icebergs in an ocean of grass. Despite shipping setbacks and resultant accumulations of buffalo anatomy, the term piles belies the more typical organization of bones into ricks, carefully constructed stacks made to the exact specifications of rail cars in order to expedite loading. Some ricks had a perimeter stabilized by skulls with thousands of other bones stacked on the interior. In fact, the buffalo bone industry was hardly a haphazard undertaking, but rather a well-organized example of industrial capitalism transplanted onto the plains. Now, this is one example in which bone hunting can be viewed not only as an endpoint of the bison herds, but also as a story of continuity in terms of the industrialized labor taking place throughout the West, such as in mining, timber, and large-scale bonanza farms. Like other industrial workers, bone hunters toiled in difficult conditions for pitiful wages often faced exploitation by bosses such as Johnson Ansley, while factory owners reaped the greatest profits. Still, many labored in the industry as a means of survival in a harsh environment in which farming was difficult or, in the case of native peoples, their previous methods of subsistence had been extinguished by colonization. Despite the difficulties involved in bone hunting, many people participated, and this is a point at which previous scholarship is lacking. Just who were these people on the prairies and why did they take part in bone hunting? In truth, the bone traders and factory owners were entirely dependent on the labor of whites and natives, both male and female, who hunted for bones individually and in groups. Most white bone hunters proved to be farmers who used the trade in bones as one of many sources of additional revenue. 
particularly when they were first starting out or when crop yields were low, which was often. Bone hunting proved a significant means of survival. While many resource extraction industries were dominated by men, bone hunting seemed to defy the gender and age-ascribed labor norms of Euro-American culture. Often, settler families worked together as the demands of survival trumped the importance of gender-defined labor pursuits. One female settler regarded bone hunting as an endeavor demanding the participation of as many able-bodied family members as possible. Quote, my father, my two sisters, and I used two teams and two wagons on our bone-gathering forays. My oldest sister and I would take one outfit, and my dad and younger sister the other. Believe me when I say I don't know how we would have lived if it had not been for the money we got that way. End quote. Although accounts of bone hunting often cast the work as an enterprise born of deprivation and necessity, for white settlers working as farmers and bone hunters on the side, private property proved a convenient method for warding off competition, as many stressed exclusive rights to the bones within their homestead claims. At the same time, however, bone hunting revealed the permeability of reservation boundaries, as whites often ignored Native American land holdings when searching for bones. This proved in keeping with long-standing practice by Americans to extract resources, either of their own volition or with government approval, within Native lands. Occasionally, invasions of reservation property by bone-hungry settlers spurred government officials to action. In 1882, John D. Miles, agent for the Cheyenne Arapaho Reservation in Indian Territory, printed a warning in local newspapers that, quote, the removal of bones from this reservation is positively prohibited, except by authority from the Indian Department, end quote. However, in other areas, the government granted whites access to bones within reservation boundaries. In 1887, a Captain Hicks, head of the Jamestown, North Dakota militia, received permission to hire a, quote, gang of breeds, unquote, which is a shortened term for half-breeds, known today as Métis, to collect bones on the Fort Berthold Reservation. While it is uncertain how much he profited from this venture or how much he paid his workers, the case of Hicks suggests that native rights to the bones within their borders proved a matter of negotiation between U.S. government officials and non-native citizens. As in so many other cases preceding and following the bone hunting years, native peoples were not consulted about the extraction of resources from their lands. And yet, one of the great understated truths of this story, and perhaps the most important takeaway from this talk, dare I say, is that the sustaining of the bone industry was due in large part to enterprising native peoples, both on and off reservations. They dominated the labor force and propped up the industry in the years following the easy pickings close to towns and rail lines. Natives had coexisted with or lived within the Euro-American economic system for generations, and bone hunting proved one of the many wage labor pursuits they participated in before and during the reservation period. It existed along with woodcutting, farming, animal husbandry, hunting, trapping, guiding, domestic service, etc. At times, native bone hunters proved to have considerable power in influencing the price per ton of bones. In 1885, Charles Aubrey, a trader operating out of Wolf Point, Montana, estimated that of the 250 tons of bones he expected to sell that year, 175 tons would come from Indians at Poplar Creek on the Fort Peck Reservation. But when the wages for woodcutting proved greater than bone hunting, Aubrey was left with a depleted labor force and a lackluster harvest. The following season, Aubrey announced he would pay $6 per ton of bones, $1.50 more than the previous year, in hopes of attracting the native workers he needed. Indeed, it was not uncommon for traders to adjust their payments to lure native bone hunters away from other markets. In the region of Devil's Lake in 1885, local rivalries over Métis business resulted in such intense competition that the price per ton skyrocketed to $20. 
However, Native peoples did not simply express their agency by participating or walking away, but also through many examples of adaptation, ingenuity, and even trickery. They discovered where railroads were going to be constructed, then piled bones along the proposed routes. Near the Mouse River in northern Dakota Territory, one settler observed a large pile, quote, where the breeds and Indians had collected them far in advance of any shipping facilities. This pile turned out over 300 carloads when the railroad came, end quote. In another case, when public outcry threatened the practice of deliberate fire setting, a large number of conflagrations began to appear adjacent to rail tracks. As a result, Métis bone hunters claimed of the sparks emitted by the passing cars. And in another case near Fort Berthold, groups of Indians reportedly hauled bones to rail towns to be weighed during the day, stole them back at night, then returned later with the same load of bones. As traders caught onto the shenanigans, some began to store purchased bones in more secure locations. Whatever the case, in exceptionally lean times, Native people clearly used whatever means they could to maximize their meager earnings from bone hunting. Over time, as a result of homestead claims and the gradual dearth of bones in the choicest hunting grounds near rail lines, traders became increasingly dependent on Native laborers, especially the free-roaming Métis, who were sometimes willing to range as far as 150 miles in search of bones. Few whites who were bound to their farms were willing to undertake such voyages and many so-called full-blood native people had limited mobility outside the borders of their reservations. In some discernible ways, Métis bone hunters were able to replicate their great bison hunts of old, as families organized themselves into groups and proceeded along familiar routes to the hunting areas where the bison lay in perpetuity. While hardly a replacement for the rich bison hunting lifestyle of the past, the bone trade revealed continuity in providing a small degree of sustenance as well as some measure of cultural preservation and solidarity. That sense is apparent in the account of M.I. McCrate, a buffalo bone trader from Devil's Lake, Dakota Territory, who offered one of the most detailed accounts of Native participation in bone hunting in the 1880s. McCrate suggested that during the summer months it was common for 50 or more mixed blood families, men, women, and children, to join together with their livestock, dogs, and carts, traveling throughout the prairies in search of bones and halting at the end of each day to camp. When their Red River carts reached capacity, a group proceeded to a nearby town, erected teepees on the outskirts, and after selling their bones, returned to camp and encircled their carts, just as they had during bison hunts. McCrate said there were, quote, few days in which some outfit is not thus encamped at the frontier boom town, end quote. A group might remain in a makeshift village for up to three weeks, buying and trading goods in town, or even working odd jobs to earn extra money, before packing up and returning to the prairie. Now, McCrate claimed that the presence of the Indian bone hunters altered the town by doubling its former area and population and creating, quote, a cosmopolitan city comprising members of every color, creed, and country, end quote. Although it is unlikely that common commercial pursuits led to the melting pot McCrate imagined, the bone trade nevertheless encouraged an intermixing of peoples at a time when the separation and isolation of natives was a high priority for the U.S. government. Despite the dominant place of Indians as bone hunters on the northern plains, the activity sometimes proved a cosmopolitan affair, crossing ethnic boundaries and blurring the lines between Indian and white work. Not only did whites participate in bone hunting, they occasionally worked alongside or even under the direction of natives. In Alberta, white German settlers from the Seven Persons Mennonite colony joined with Métis workers, all under the direction of James Sanderson, a Métis who dominated the medicine hat bone trade in the mid-1880s. Despite Sanderson's success, 
Bone hunting proved a method of short-term survival for natives, rather than a means of recapturing their former prestige on the plains. One settler reflected this sentiment bluntly. Quote, we were never able to control the savages until their supply of meat was cut off. It is a mercy they can't eat bones, end quote. In fact, for native peoples bound to reservations, the trade in bones proved vital in sustaining them during the incredibly difficult, if not impossible, reservation farming of the 1880s. In most cases, freighting, not farming, proved the dominant economic activity, as Indian agents throughout the plains reported significant earnings from bone hunting in proportion to the overall trade in goods. In 1885 and 86, six reservations in Dakota and Indian Territory freighted more than 15 million pounds of goods, mostly timber and bones. In the late 1880s on Fort Peck and Fort Berthold reservations, nearly 25% of profit from sold goods came from bones. In nearly all cases in the 1880s, bone hunting proved more lucrative than farming. By the 1890s, as the catch decreased, fertilizer and sugar mills sought alternatives to stay in business. A turn to mineral phosphate proved the answer for the fertilizer industry, while sugar refiners largely replaced bone black filtration with a new electrical process. Although some individuals continued to sell bones for a small payout, most often from the easy pickings of piles abandoned after the market deteriorated, bone hunting had all but ceased by the turn of the century. But I don't want to end our story here, because I want to know, what did people think about bone hunting, and how was it remembered? And while it's true that the buffalo bone trade alleviated the hard times of early settlers and natives, and that the industry was a significant undertaking in late 19th century America, exceeding $40 million in overall output, which is about $1.2 billion today, bone hunting was more than a fleeting economic activity, as it proved to hold a lasting influence on identities, memories, and perceptions of a changing West. Many commentators during the height of the bone trade referred to the practice in less than glamorous terms, usually calling it a form of scavenging. By doing so, they called into question the moral nature of the enterprise and the individuals involved. That immorality was most often expressed through claims of grave robbing. In trying to define the character of the bone picker, the Bozeman Times reported in 1875, quote, if he comes upon the ghastly ruins of an Indian scrimmage, that is clear gain for the osseous remains of the red citizen helped to complete the load." End quote. Occasionally, it seems these accounts were true. In 1883, a settler from Dakota Territory reported to a local newspaper that, after discovering the skeletal remains of seven humans and 26 horses while searching for buffalo bones, he unceremoniously dumped them into his wagon with the rest of his take. The newspaper story concluded that, quote, there is a ghastly possibility that the dead men may contribute to the enrichment of their own garden patches. Despite these accounts, most newspaper reports indicate that such finds were hardly as ordinary as some believed. However, the idea that collecting human bones was commonplace plays to an image of bone hunting as a grisly occupation born of death and destruction. The purported human bone collection and scavenging nature of bone hunting led some to regard the work as a sign of the degeneracy of individuals in an age of rapid change and industrialization. Perhaps this is why many perceived bone hunters as lonely or isolated males, who seem to occupy the blurry space between the glorified and mythical West, with its wildness and freedom, and the modern industrial West, with its supposed progress through pacification and destruction. This image from Harper's Weekly seems to reflect the words of Kansas poet Scott Cummins, who wrote Song of the Bone Pilgrim in 1879, a poem that captured feelings of isolation and insecurity. 
Quote, I pass by the home of the wealthy, and I pass by the hut of the poor, but none care for me when my cargo they see, and no one will open the door. Oh, think of the poor bone pilgrim, you who are safely at home. No one to pity me, no one to cheer me, as over the lone prairie I roam. Although some linked bone hunting to degeneracy, others remembered it as the Dodge City Times reported in 1888. Quote, the selling of buffalo bones drove the wolf from the door, end quote. In lean times, bone hunting proved a practical means for survival, and traipsing over the prairies in search of bones seemed a rite of passage. One poem celebrated the enterprise. Quote, we would hitch up those oxen and roam the prairies wide and pick up buffalo bones that lay thick on every side. Those bones were our salvation, for they brought us ready cash when the flour barrel was empty and we hadn't any hash. Unquote. Bone hunting was a savior to be sure, but many also saw it as the beginning of a march toward progress and symbolic of a primitive and bygone way of life. More than two decades after the peak of the trade, that idea of a transition from the backward bone hunting days to a time of prosperity appeared in a commentary in the Emmons County Record regarding an upcoming election for sheriff. The editors claimed that in days past, those donning, I'll use air quotes, gunny sacks for overshoes and hunting buffalo bones for their chief source of income might well have elected Bill Jones, a current candidate of dark skin complexion and plebeian background. But with material prosperity and civilization, the county's citizens, according to the editors, would settle for nothing less than a sheriff, aristocratic and blue-blooded lineage. So here we not only see a reference to primitivity, but also negative racial and class distinctions tied to the memory of the bone hunter. Despite their dominance in bone hunting, native peoples are virtually absent from cultural representations and popular memories. However, during the height of the trade, some whites cast native laborers in a similar light as American settlers, as transitioning from backwardness or savagery to progress or civilization. On the Cheyenne and Arapaho Agency in 1885, the Indian agent reported, quote, a year ago, this was the favorite camping ground of a majority of these Indians, and was well dotted with teepees as far as one could see. Skulls, bones, horns, and hooves covered hundreds of acres. But today, the whole scene has changed. The teepees have given way to the march of civilization. The bones, etc., have been carted off, and small but well-kept farms are seen on every hand, end quote. Progress and civilization was not simply the clearing of land to make way for agriculture, but also the sweeping away of plains culture, in which bison bodies were replaced by plowed fields and teepees by farmhouses. Although featuring settler colonists, this 1883 painting demonstrates, excuse me, 1913 painting demonstrates a strong contrast through its plow line between the old and new, between civilization and savagery. Thus, we see bone hunting diversely yet sometimes simultaneously imagined as a marker for progress and civilization, as a sign of social degeneracy, as a tool for survival, and as a symbol of settler determination. It was lauded as a savior by many white settlers of the American West, and as a representation of adversity, bootstrapping, and a willingness to make use of what the land offered. Yet it was also loathed as an example of unchecked industrialization, in which immoral men profited from destruction and underpaid workers battling for the scraps might even sell the bones of fallen brethren to put bread on their tables. While buffalo bone hunting meant different things to different people, it also featured an array of characters, ranging from men like George Gibbs, who worked for bosses like Johnson Ansley, to settler families who labored on their homesteads, to Native Americans who combed the open prairies in large groups. 
However, despite their adversity, each buffalo bone hunter held certain things in common. As they labored by the thousands across vast expanses of North America, loading their carts and wagons with bones in the hot prairie sun, they shared in a common struggle for existence on a harsh and unforgiving landscape. But their labor was not simply about survival. The bone hunters, like many peoples of the West, sought to realize new dreams of prosperity, or perhaps recapture lost ones, during a time of change and adversity. Yet for the vast majority, the success they envisioned proved illusory, and the hopes they once had became distant memories that faded with time, like the last scattered buffalo bones swallowed up by tall prairie grasses. <laughs>